0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And what if websites were held responsible for the content that other people post to those websites? What if, after a customer left a bad review for a product online... The company that makes that product would sue Amazon for hosting the review. What if that company that makes the thing, what if they won that lawsuit? What if Facebook were liable for the posts made by its 2 billion users worldwide? If sites were held accountable for the content that users and third parties posted to them, we would not have the internet we have today. In fact, companies and organizations like Wikipedia, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, even Google wouldn't exist, or at least they wouldn't exist in the forums they do today if that were the case. Now, if you live in the United States, you might have heard a bit about a Section 230. Even if you're outside the United States, you might have heard some references to it. Now, if you're only casually following the news or you just hear Section 230 in passing, it's probably pretty confusing. It clearly has something to do with technology and liability and communication. President Donald Trump called upon Congress to revoke it several times now, even threatening to veto the funding of the National Defense Authorization Act unless Congress repealed Section 230. But Trump is not the only politician to call out this legislation, representatives from both the Republican and Democrat parties have proposed changes or even the outright elimination of Section 230 over the years. Heck, President-elect Joe Biden has also called upon the need to revoke 230. And if you live in America, you might be surprised to hear that Trump and Biden have agreed on something. Though I guess it's fair to point out they agree on the end result, but for very different motivations. So, In today's episode, I want to talk about what Section 230 is, where it came from, what its purpose was and is, and why there's so much discussion about a need to change or get rid of it from various viewpoints across the political spectrum. And I'll do my best to avoid any political commentary, but I do want to say that the motivations behind these various calls for change, they vary a great deal. I think a lot of folks in politics agree that Section 230 needs some attention, but they don't all agree as to the reasons why or how it should be done. So we're going to get into all of that. And before we jump in, I want to recommend uh, an amazing resource. It's a book by Jeff Kossif titled The 26 Words That Created the Internet. And it's all about Section 230 from the genesis of the idea to the implementation of Section 230 in court cases. And it's also a really good read, which is a weird thing to say about a book centering on a subsection of a huge telecommunications bill. I should also add, as a trigger warning, that book discusses some cases that deal with some really heavy, dark stuff. 230 has been tested in some really emotionally charged cases that include truly awful things that have happened to people. So fair warning if you do want to check that book out and give it a read. Now, at the heart of all of this are concepts like free speech, which has very wide protection in America, and liability, that is you know, being held accountable, legally accountable for something. Because while there are broad protections for freedom of speech, it is not absolute there are some forms of speech and expression that are not protected under the First Amendment. And that's because free speech sometimes bumps up against other important things like security or privacy, that kind of thing. So it's one of those things where it's not pure black and white. There are some shades of gray. Now, let's find out what Section 230 is. And it's called Section 230, so that suggests it's part of something bigger, right? It's a section of something. Well, that, it's a section of a larger piece of legislation, and that piece was the Communications Decency Act. So let's turn back the hands of the clock a bit. Heck, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll dust off the old tech stuff time machine for this one. I don't think we've actually used it in years. Fortunately, I, I did bring it home with me when our office went into lockdown. So it's really just taking up space in the corner. Hang on. Uh, hang on a second. I'm just going to get it out. I got to move a couple things. Uh, be right back. All right. All right. So I've got it now. Uh, let me set the dial back to uh, let's see. Uh, 1990, all right? Okay, here we go, everybody in. Come on, let's all get into the time machine. All right, ready? Push the button, Frank. (laughs) And here we are. It's 1990! The number one hit single of the year is Hold On by Wilson Phillips, a song I'm not ashamed to say I absolutely loved at the time. Shows like Cheers, A Different World, and Murphy Brown are on television. At the box office, the film Ghost comes out on top, with Home Alone not far behind. But we're not here to see the awkward transition of the 1980s transform into the 1990s. No, we're here to learn about how U.S. law would view the role of online platforms. Now, back in 1990, where we are now, the internet isn't really a thing as far as the mainstream public is concerned. It exists, but hardly anyone knows very much about it outside of research facilities and government offices. There's no such thing as the World Wide Web yet. However, There are a few big online service providers, or OSPs. Now, these are sort of the predecessors to internet service providers, or ISPs. And OSP is kind of like its own micro-internet, though really we would just kind of call it a network. So think of it as a self-contained collection of servers that hosts stuff like forums and newsletters and articles and files, and you're on the right track. And they don't necessarily talk to each other. So they're kind of self-contained. Well, one of those big OSPs is CompuServe, and it's going to get taken to court. At the heart of the matter is an accusation of libel. That is uh, uh, a misinformation with the intent to cause harm that's in print. The plaintiffs, Robert Blanchard and a company called Cubby Incorporated, have developed a news and rumors service called Scuttlebutt which focuses on the radio and TV industries. Now, according to the plaintiffs, a newsletter that is also that's called uh, Rumorville USA, which also covers rumors in the TV and radio spaces, has published untrue and harmful things about Scuttlebutt. And Rumorville is available on CompuServe. So the plaintiffs targeted not just Rumorville, but CompuServe in their lawsuit. So they say, CompuServe is responsible because it allows the distribution of Rumorville, which in turn has published libelous content about Scuttlebutt. So the lawyers representing CompuServe argue that the service has no connection to Rumorville other than as serving as a way for people to get the newsletter. In other words, CompuServe is saying, hey, we don't write that. We just have it on our, our service, but we don't write it. There's no... There's no employment here to, to generate that newsletter. CompuServe isn't involved editorially in the newsletter at all. It just comes from another company. That company is Don Fitzpatrick Associates of San Francisco, and it's referred to in the court documents as DFA. CompuServe did not employ this company or pay for this newsletter. And moreover, according to the agreement between CompuServe and DFA, DFA accepts full responsibility for the contents of its newsletter. So CompuServe's lawyers go and make a motion for a summary judgment, which in this case was to dismiss the the in, the charges, just for the court to make a, a, a decision on behalf of one party against another party without the need to go to a full trial. And the judge grants this to CompuServe, and the judge agrees that CompuServe did not bear responsibility for the contents of this newsletter. The judge says that CompuServe is kind of like a bookstore, and you wouldn't hold a bookstore responsible for the contents of a book that was published by a third party just because it happens to be in that bookstore. The bookstore is just—that's where customers can buy books. The store did not put the actual content into the books— And this becomes a precedent that would serve as a foundational building block for Section 230 later. All right, everyone, um, we're done here. Let's all jump back in the time machine. Come on, no stragglers. I don't want to have to come back to 1990. I lived through it once. We're done. Uh, We got to hop forward a couple of years. Okay, ready? Push the button. All right, now we're in 1994. So now the number one song in America would be Ace of Bases' The Sign, which I don't know about you, but it opened up my eyes. I'm happy now. Seinfeld is dominating TV ratings, and the big movies at the box office are The Lion King and Forrest Gump. So what are we doing here and now? Well, this time we've got another lawsuit, but this is one that's against a different OSP called Prodigy. Now, like CompuServe, Prodigy hosts stuff like forums and articles and other services. On one forum, an anonymous user alleged that a securities firm named Stratton Oakmont was committing fraud in a stock offering, and Stratton, Stratton Oakmont would sue Prodigy for libel. Now, Prodigy's lawyers said that the, we shouldn't be held responsible for the content that's posted by a third party by a Prodigy user. And they cited the CompuServe ruling that came back a few years earlier. But the judge in this case disagrees with Prodigy's lawyers. They rule against the service. And the judge says that Prodigy exercised editorial control over the forums. The service could and did remove material that was objectionable, unlike CompuServe, which had taken largely a hands-off approach to the stuff that was published on CompuServe, Prodigy got more involved and would remove things that were in violation of, you know, community standards. And therefore, that made Prodigy not like a bookstore. It made them more like a publication, like a newspaper. And the editorial control means that Prodigy would have to assume responsibility for stuff that appeared on the service. After all, if Prodigy intervenes in some cases, it means it could and should have intervened in other cases, like with Stratton Oakmont. So we have that 1991 decision that says a platform is not responsible for third-party content published on that platform. But then we have a 1995 decision that seems to contradict that. Uh, If the platform exercised any sort of content management, that means that they can be held liable. And I know we traveled to 1990 and 1994, respectively, but court cases can take a really long time. So the decisions were actually handed down a year after the initial lawsuit started. I'm sorry that we all had to wait around so long for that. Well, this created a precarious situation for online companies. Uh, Because the message seemed to be that if you provided a space for users and third parties to post stuff, it would best suit you if you just never, ever interfered with that, regardless of what gets posted to the platform. Because intervening would be a slippery slope. If you start removing content, even stuff that clearly should not be there, like videos of violence or pornography or death threats or or personal information of other users, whatever it might be, if you remove it, no matter how obviously awful it is, you create a precedent in which you are acting in an editorial capacity. And if you can do that, then are you really free of liability when someone posts something that's libelous or otherwise illegal? And remember, This is the mid-90s. The online world hadn't even really started to take off yet. So there was a real concern that we would see a big negative impact, a chilling effect on the founding and evolution of online businesses. Considering that people had generally come to the belief that the internet was going to be the future of business, or at least an important component of business, this was a bad thing. Now, if you guys pay attention out there, you probably know that politicians typically lag behind big issues in technology. Technology changes much faster than policies do. And a lot of politicians in this country are, uh, in the United States, um, how do I put this delicately? They're old. Like, a lot of them are really old, The average age, the average age of a congressperson is 20 years older than the average American. In 2020, the average age of a representative is 57. For senators, it's 61. And generally speaking, older generations are a little slower to pick up on technological advances than younger ones. Now, there are exceptions to this, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be ageist here. But as a general rule, older people are less up to speed on emerging technologies. I think that rule applies double when it comes to politicians from my own anecdotal experience, which I get isn't really evidence. So while this was a growing concern within the tech world, only a couple of politicians really picked up on how these court decisions could create an issue and impede the growth of online services in those early days. Now, that pair included a Democrat named Ron Wyden and a Republican named Chris Cox, who wanted to create legislation, full stop. They both wanted to make their mark. They wanted to pass some laws. But at this particular time in American history, it was really hard to do that because partisan politics were pretty vicious at the time. I think they were gentle as a kitten compared to today's politics, but at the time it was considered pretty brutal. And that meant there was very little chance to get agreement across the aisle. Uh, Republicans at the time controlled both the House and the Senate in Congress uh, in the United States. Our, our Congress is divided up into two branches, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And a Democrat was president, so president and a Republican Congress. And they figured, these two people figured that their best chance at making an impact was to find a topic that was so new, so cutting edge, that neither party had actually formed an opinion about it yet. The internet was a perfect target. And this, my friends, drives me bonkers. Because it points out that the writing of Section 230 didn't begin with politicians identifying an issue and then finding a way to solve it. Instead, it was a case of a couple of politicians trying to figure out what sort of problem, any problem, could they find where they could potentially tackle it and get their names on some legislation. Uh, It's probably being a little unfair, but it is sort of the reality of politics, and from a practical standpoint, I get it, but it's also kind of disillusioning to me. The pair determined that they would have a decent chance at proposing legislation that would protect online services from being sued for the content that other people were posting to those services. Plus, give the services the freedom to moderate content without fear of being sued for that either. The internet was so new, and the potential was so huge, that they felt that this was a pretty good bet. So they drafted out a proposed piece of legislation that they called the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act. It would ultimately have as its core principle the following, quote, "...no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider." End quote. Now, in addition, the piece has what has been called the good faith section, which states that platforms will not be held liable for, quote, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. End quote. Now, when we come back, we'll learn more about what this actually means from a practical sense. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. take control of your business finances today at concur.com that's c o n c
1: u r.com i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico
0: So, on the face of it, Section 230 is fairly simple. You cannot hold someone, or something in the case of a platform, as the person responsible for what someone else, or something else, says on that platform. So that applies to the services and the users. If I'm on a forum and I'm making an argument for a certain point of view, and someone else joins in with libelous accusations about a third person, it would be unreasonable to hold me accountable for that other person's words, right? I didn't say the libelous thing. Why would I be responsible for it? I might have started the discussion thread. I might have initiated the conversation. But if I didn't actually say anything libelous, then I shouldn't be held responsible, right? Well, that same protection, according to this legislation, would apply to online platforms. In addition, the platforms would be able to make their own moderation policies and not be held liable if the platform removed something that would otherwise be constitutionally protected. So in other words, if Facebook removed a post because it violated a Facebook standard, even if that post would otherwise be protected constitutionally, Facebook would not be held liable as long as that removal was done in good faith. Now, in 95, at the time that Cox and Wyden were putting together their proposal in the House of Representatives, there was another piece of legislation under consideration that aimed at the issue of pornography online, but that was taking place over in the U.S. Senate. And this piece tried to treat online content in a way similar to how the U.S. government regulates content on TV and on radio broadcasts. There was a growing concern about the availability, the accessibility of pornographic and obscene material. Uh, obscenity in this case would fall under a pretty conservative definition. Like, you know, kind of like beauty, obscenity is in the eye of the beholder. It's one of those things that you know it when you see it. That's kind of the famous quote in US history. But the proposed legislation would criminalize the act of exposing those under 18 to obscene or pornographic materials online. Now, I should say it covered instances in which the age of the recipient, or at least their under 18 status, would have to be known to the person or entity sending the material for this to be relevant. The proposed legislation went a bit further than that, too, with sections related to speech that is indecent but not obscene. Again, Really weird gray area territory here, but the language raised some concerns among civil liberties organizations. So people made some pretty strong arguments against this Senate version of the idea. For example, in the medical industry, there's terminology that some people might define as indecent that's absolutely critical for legitimate medical communication in clear terms. So sites that provide useful information for sensitive topics like educating people about sexually transmitted diseases or resources for people who are in the LGBTQ communities, all of that could be at risk if you allow this kind of legislation to go forward. So Ron Wyden and Chris Cox were positioning their proposal in the House of Representatives as kind of an alternative to the approach that was being talked about in the Senate. They suggested that online platforms have the ability to moderate content on their sites without the risk of being held liable for the stuff that people and other parties were posting to those sites. And according to Kossif, their idea met with no resistance. In fact, barely anyone even noticed. In the United States... The way Congress creates new laws requires both the House of Representatives and the Senate to vote on the legislation and approve it uh, before sending that piece on to the president to be signed into law, or potentially vetoed. In a case where both the House and the Senate are working on something similar but distinct as far as legislation goes, those two versions have to be hashed out in committee to create a more unified approach both the Communications Decency Act out of the Senate and what would become Section 230 in the House of Representatives would ultimately be lumped in with the overall discussions of what would become the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Most of Congress was really focused on the other elements of the Telecommunications Act, the stuff that related to telephone companies and telephone infrastructure and cable companies, and the internet portions were more of an afterthought. It was so new that a lot of people weren't really thinking about that. They were thinking, no, the futures and long-distance phone calls, gosh darn it. And so both the CDA, which had support due to it being positioned as a piece of legislation that was advocating for family values, which, boy, was that a big, big point of discussion in the 90s, and then Section 230, which was positioned as protecting new and, uh, and a vulnerable industry, both of them made it through. So in the end... The language that would become Section 230 and the alternative proposal, which would become the online portions of the Communications Decency Act, would be bound together to form kind of a Voltron-like construction of online policy. Now, the Telecommunications Act is enormous. It's a beast of a law covering stuff like telephone lines, cable television, and more. Section 230 is just a tiny part of that beast. Interestingly, the anti-obscenity measures in the Communications Decency Act would not stand the test of time. Judges would strike down large portions of it, citing issues such as vague terminology like indecent and offensive. Without firm definitions, that legislation was open to far too much subjective interpretation to be useful. But while a lot of the CDA would go bye-bye, Section 230 remained intact. So all that obscenity and decency stuff was gone, but that Section 230 idea from Wyden and Cox was still there. It wasn't brought into question in the courts the way the parts of the CDA that specifically dealt with indecency online did. But Section 230 went untouched, and it was a doozy. So with Section 230, online services received immunization from liability regarding what their users and third parties published. Section 230 means that these entities... Things like Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Google. They cannot be held legally responsible for user-generated content with only the most minute exceptions, and those, most of those would come much, much later. It's sort of a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, especially in the early days, Uh When drafting the language, Wyden and Cox were careful to avoid being too broad. Uh, The idea was that outright criminal activities and stuff like copyright infringement wouldn't receive full protection under 230. But pretty much everything else was. Uh, At least that was the potential for it. Now, here's the thing about laws. They get tested in the courts. Courts are left to interpret and enforce laws. So Congress writes the laws, the president approves the laws, But the laws are interpreted and enforced in the court system, in the judicial system. So the fact that the courts could interpret this meant that there was still a question as to whether the court would say that Section 230 would mean that online services would have a conditional shield, a conditional immunity to liability, as long as they did operate in good faith, you know, kind of like... If they were told to remove something because it was illegal or harmful, that they then went and did so, and then they'd be fine. Or the courts could interpret a different way. They could say that the protections are more broad, and they could give online services complete freedom from liability unless an exception were to be applied. And as it turned out, the court system leaned toward option number two, that broad application approach. And it wasn't done lightly or easily. I would love to go into this more, but it would take up way too much time. And trust me, this episode is going to be a long one. So if you want to learn about the legal decisions that would codify the extent to which Section 230 protects online services, read Jeff Kosoff's book that I mentioned earlier. Now, when Wyden and Cox put this plan together, their concept was that these service providers, protected by immunity to legal repercussions as far as user-generated content is concerned, would be freed up to moderate that user-generated content as much as they needed to. The goal was to create a safety structure so that Prodigy or America Online or, much later, Amazon or Facebook or Google would have the freedom to excise objectionable material off the site without risking being seen as a publisher that has liability, like Prodigy was a few years earlier. And I've seen this described as the sword and shield approach. The shield is that immunity, and the sword is that editorial capacity to intervene without fear of retribution. But there was a problem platforms began to adopt a tendency to just rely on the shield part. Frequently, they did very little to editorialize or to moderate. Now, this might sound familiar to you. Over the past few years, Twitter, for example, has come under fire for being reticent when it comes to applying the company's own terms of service as far as content goes, Time and again, people have cited tweets from various users and asked Twitter's management why such examples are allowed to stay on Twitter when, by at least what is arguably a reasonable interpretation, those tweets violate the code that Twitter says it has in place. We've seen this a lot with certain politicians in particular, and it was only recently that Twitter would even flag posts from prominent politicians like the president as containing misleading information or untruths, and Twitter in no way rushed to address this problem. I'll get to why they ultimately did later, but spoiler alert, it doesn't really have anything to do with Section 230. Now, I don't mean to just single out Twitter and ignore everyone else, because as I said, it was far more common across the board for platforms to take a very hands-off approach when it came to moderating content. Typically, they only stepped in during particularly extreme or blatant abuses of the platform's policies, and not always even then. All of this despite that immunity granted by Section 230. There were a couple of reasons for this. One is that, as I mentioned in the Facebook algorithm episode that published last week, Companies like Facebook benefit financially from people being active on their platforms, and controversial posts generate a lot of action. So you could argue, hey, that bad stuff that we would rather not have on these platforms, that's making the platforms a lot of money, so there's not a lot of financial incentive for them to act against it. Second, over the past few years, several platforms have emerged that seek to encourage trolling and malicious behaviors. Like, they're not just hosting it. Their whole purpose is to be a a hotspot for that. And they rely on Section 230 to shield them from repercussions because that immunity, at least at first, extended so far that even if a platform were to distribute or perhaps even encourage the distribution of malicious content, It was still protected as long as it was not generating the content. If it was someone else who was using their platform to spread terrible stuff, they were still in the clear because Section 230 gave them that protection. There were numerous court cases that challenged this in different ways, including ones that would see plaintiffs sue platforms for negligence, for failing to take down a harmful post after being told about it. But early on, courts had decided that if they found in favor of plaintiffs in these cases, it would just represent a workaround for Section 230, and it would essentially invalidate the protections entirely, because all it would do is send the message of, don't sue Twitter for libel, for example, sue them for negligence. So that would mean that you would just have a different pathway to go after these platforms and Section 230 would be meaningless. So the courts decided that was unacceptable and they ruled early on that immunity from liability extended beyond stuff like libel. In fact, some of the rulings appeared to give online companies even more protection than Chris Cox, one of the two original drafters of the law, had in mind. He said, it may be that this was applied more broadly than we had intended. For malicious websites and forums, this could mean that if you have a particular agenda and a means to launch an online platform, you can push your agenda, even if it causes harm to other people, by giving sympathizers, you know, people who share your philosophy, if you give them a place to promote their ideology, your ideology, as long as you're careful not to do it yourself, because you're really just providing a place for third parties to do it, uh, if you start to publish your own words, you no longer have protection because you're not acting as a distributor for a third party's content. And and that would be fine. So we saw it happen a lot. We still do. And then third, over the years, the government has steadily chipped away bit by bit at that protective shield, with various court cases leading judges to interpret exemptions for that immunity to liability, and that makes platforms a little less keen on editorializing for fear of being pulled into one of those exceptions. Now, when we come back, I'll talk a bit more about the ways that courts have eroded Section 230 from its original and arguably OP status. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. All right, guys. You know what? I guess it's about time we we kind of jump back into the present. So the '90s were fun and all, but um, take off the flannel, stop listening to grunge, forget about my so-called life for a minute, and let's all get back in the time. Everyone, back in the time machine. You too. All right. I'll 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 push the button. For the first decade of its existence, Section 230 was kinda like a bulletproof vest for online platforms when it came to liability linked to user and third-party content. Uh, There are numerous incredible court cases featuring some really sympathetic plaintiffs, you know, people who inarguably suffered hardships because of someone sharing harmful or abusive materials online. And the message seemed to be that, at least in some cases, There was no real legal recourse for these people to seek out justice. If the perpetrator who's publishing this harmful information is anonymous, it can be really hard to track that person down and hold them accountable for what they said online. There are lots of ways that people can hide their identity, including ways to hide their IP address which means that in some cases it would just be impossible to figure out who was ultimately responsible, and Section 230 would shield the platforms from legal action, which meant that the victim would have no real options, and that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Now, before I get into details, I do wanna say that I acknowledge this is a very tricky situation. On the one hand, It seems unreasonable to hold a platform accountable for something that it didn't generate. It wasn't responsible for creating it. So if I pop onto Twitter and I post harmful lies about you, it's not Twitter's fault that I did that, right? It's my fault. And Twitter should be protected from being unfairly lumped in with me on that matter. Online platforms serve millions or even billions of people, and there's just no way to filter every single post from every single person to make sure that there's nothing harmful there. But on the other hand, let's say I post something that is demonstrably false and harmful directed toward you, and you alert the platform I've used to this problem. If the platform fails to act to take down that post or perhaps even go further, maybe ban me from using the service, then doesn't that suggest the platform itself should be held accountable? I mean, it's allowing a wrong to continue. Is there no responsibility to prevent harm? And if there isn't, what makes the internet different from other things that law covers? Because other areas of the world, you know, in, in the legal world, in the United States, they don't enjoy this protection. But it's a really complex issue, and it reminds us that you can have a lot of things that are really important, like freedom of speech, or a right to privacy, or an expectation of security, and you can have those come into conflict with one another. And it ultimately means that whatever decision you make, it's not going to be satisfying to everybody. Starting at around 2008, courts began to rule that Section 230 wasn't a perfect force field protecting online services from all liability. In California, a pair of fair housing nonprofit organizations brought a lawsuit against a website called Roommates.com. They said that the site was encouraging users to post and sort housing opportunities in a discriminatory way, and that violated federal and state law. It is illegal to advertise housing with language that indicates preference, limitation, or discrimination based on race, sex, familial status, and that kind of thing. But roommates.com allowed users to fill out fields on all that kind of stuff. You, know, you could create a, a profile where you included things like your gender, your familial you know, status, your sexual orientation, all this kind of stuff. And some people on the site started posting discriminatory notices, saying things like, you know, essentially, only white people need to apply, that kind of stuff. Terrible stuff. Now, the lawyer for Roommates.com argued that the site was protected under Section 230. But the plaintiff's lawyer said, hang on, Roommates is totally setting all this up because it has people fill in that information in the first place. It asks people to give that that those details. Now, the case was initially dismissed in a lower court, but an appeals court would take it into further consideration. And that three-judge court ultimately decided that With a very narrow focus, Roommates.com was liable for asking questions that were allegedly discriminatory, but that it was not liable for the content that users were writing in the site, like under additional comments. And it's a fine distinction, but it marked a small weakness in 230's armor. Moreover, a subsequent hearing found that a website develops content if it, quote, contributes materially to the alleged illegality of the conduct, end quote, which would mean in those cases, the service would no longer be a simple publisher or distributor. It would be a developer of content, and thus 230 protection would not apply. Subsequent court cases reinforce the idea that if a website Quote unquote, materially contributes to the illegality of material posted to that site by third parties, it would not or may not qualify for Section 230 immunity. So the parameters of protection began to change a little bit. Should a court find that a site had not just allowed users to post illegal material, but to somehow be active in that process beyond just being a publication platform, then it could be held accountable. But while there were new parameters, they weren't strictly defined. And courts would have to interpret specific cases within the context of this kind of vague notion of restrictions to immunity. A subsequent case brought against Yahoo by a woman named Cecilia Barnes would further complicate matters. Barnes' ex-boyfriend created a fake profile on Yahoo, claiming that the profile belonged to Cecilia, and he included nude pictures of Barnes that he had taken without her consent, which is truly horrifying, and then he also included her work contact information, and before long, men were showing up and trying to contact Cecilia, and that must have come as a real shock to her. I can't imagine how disruptive that had to have been to her life. Cecilia found a link on Yahoo that explained what people should do in the event that they wanted to claim a profile that purported to represent them was in fact a fake, and it involved sending an assigned statement and a copy of their ID to Yahoo via snail mail. So not exactly the the fastest or most streamlined of processes, but Barnes went ahead and did it. But the Yahoo profile stayed up. Barnes had heard nothing back from Yahoo. So she tried it again, a couple of times, and still didn't receive any reply. Then she was scheduled to give an interview on local television and talk about her experience when miraculously a Yahoo representative actually reached out to her. Now that representative was the director of communications at Yahoo, and the director of communications promised Cecilia that She would take a faxed request from Cecilia over to the proper division by hand and make certain that the profile was removed. And the profile was not removed. It stayed up for another couple of months. So Barnes goes and sues Yahoo. Now, I'm going to skip most of the court process. But ultimately, the case hinged on the fact that a Yahoo representative had made a promise to do something, but then didn't do it. And that, the court found, was outside the protections of Section 230. Ironically, if Yahoo had not reached out at all, if the company had just allowed things to keep on going as they were going with the fake profile up and they just never replied to Barnes, Section 230 would still have applied to Yahoo. It was only because the representative had promised to do something and did not follow through that the company was found liable. Now, if Yahoo had actually pulled down that profile, there also would have been nothing to talk about here. So if they had done what they said they were gonna do, there also wouldn't have been a problem. So literally Yahoo went down the one pathway where there still would be liability. Uh, Barnes actually ultimately withdrew her lawsuit before it would go through the entire court process, but that earlier finding in court would hold, and it would oddly discourage platforms from taking a more active role in moderation. Because if a site, did promise to remove something, and then they didn't do it in a timely enough manner, they could be held liable for that because they, they didn't carry through on a promise. If they did nothing at all, they wouldn't be liable. They'd be protected under Section 230. And I don't know about you, but doing nothing tends to be easier than doing something. I mean, it's even easier than promising to do something but not doing it. Just not doing anything at all still the easiest thing to do. So in a way, these rulings that found limitations to 230 reinforced the behaviors of companies that were reluctant to moderate the content on their platforms. More recently, cases have been brought to light that Section 230 can play a role in suppressing voices of marginalized and vulnerable populations. So in other words, a piece of legislation tied to the spirit of free speech could, in itself, be suppressing the free speech of others. For example, while there are plenty of cases of online harassment campaigns for all sorts of people, women represent a disproportionate number of victims of online harassment. Women, particularly young women, encounter sexualized online abuse far more frequently than men do. And so there is a real issue of Section 230 providing immunity to platforms that house communities who are perpetuating an abusive set of behaviors, which is not great. And other vulnerable populations face this too. We see it in terms of race and sexual orientation, religious affiliations, political affiliations, and more. And that harassment can have the effect of silencing the people who are being harassed. So it is a form of suppression of the freedom of speech. So, courts have whittled back a bit of the Section 230 protection, and we have seen a bit more of a move toward moderating content on platforms. However, this is not out of a fear of legal liability. Instead, it's because of consumer demand. We've seen platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter get more involved in content moderation, not because the government was you know, not going to provide them immunity. The immunity, the illegal immunity was still there. It's because users were demanding it. And a failure to act could have resulted in users dumping the services. And these companies could still operate with an incredible amount of legal protection, but that doesn't save them from the consequences of people abandoning their their business. They need those customers. And then in 2018, Congress passed a bill that amended Section 230. It removed protections for any site that knowingly contributes to or supports sex trafficking. While the goal of eliminating the support of sex trafficking is a really good one, it's one we absolutely need to focus on, the actual bill itself would receive some criticism, not for its purpose, but in its creation, like in its wording. So law professor Eric Goldman wrote that, quote, as a result, liability based on knowledge pushes internet companies to adopt one of two extreme positions moderate all content perfectly and accept the legal risk for any errors or don't moderate content at all as a way of negating knowledge so when you think of it that way if if the law says if you know that this is happening you're obligated to stop it or if not you're going to be held liable then that also opens up the opportunity to quote-unquote not know it is happening. It, it, in, it creates an incentive to not get involved, uh, which is like the earlier problems that I mentioned in this episode, but you know, more. But any system designed by humans is going to be imperfect, right? And that brings us up to this year, where we're seeing various politicians and others calling for an end or at least a, an amendment to Section 230. President Trump appears angry that Twitter, for example, has flagged many of his tweets as containing misleading information. He has gone so far as to call Section 230 a threat to national security, which echoes something that was actually argued back in the 1970s that uh, related to the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, That tactic didn't work then, and I don't think it's really gonna work now. And it doesn't help that the root of the problem, which is misinformation, is really to blame here. There's also a misinterpretation of Section 230 going on here, because Trump has argued that platforms must be neutral in their approach, which just isn't true. It's not part of the original law at all, nor is that an interpretation that's been supported in the numerous court cases that have shaped the practice of Section 230. Nowhere does it state that a platform has to be neutral. In fact, in some of the most famous cases in which Section 230 protections were upheld, It involved content platforms that were most assuredly not neutral. And in at least a few cases, they were arguably downright maliciously biased. Now, last year in 2019, Senator Josh Hawley, a a Republican from Missouri, introduced legislation that would require any online service with more than 30 million U.S. users or 300 million users globally, or with a revenue of at least $500 million, would be required to take a politically neutral stance when it came to moderating content in order to qualify for Section 230 protection. So the implication here is that the platforms have a bias against a particular political philosophy. In this case... He's arguing that they are biased against conservatives. And therefore, when these platforms moderate content, they tend to do so disproportionately to the detriment of conservative voices. Not many people are taking this particular proposal seriously because it would probably get torn to shreds under First Amendment arguments in court. It wouldn't hold up to scrutiny at all. Other proposals aim to follow the path of the 2018 amendment that covered sex trafficking with the idea that you could do the same thing with other exceptions to the Section 230 protection. But one potential problem with that approach is that it creates a real mess as far as what 230 does and doesn't apply to. And it could potentially reach a point where it's harder to tell under what conditions platforms have protection versus the conditions where they don't, and it would place a very heavy burden on the court system to determine through various lawsuits if the defendants, that being the platforms, had met the legal burden to qualify for 230 protection. So in other words, that's not ideal either. Then there's the possibility that Congress will just repeal 230 totally, which would have been terrifying to companies back in the 90s when they were still trying to establish themselves. But frankly, 230 protection is an American thing. In other places like Europe, these broad protections don't exist in that form, and yet social networking platforms, forums, that kind of stuff, they still operate in those places. Now granted, they have to do so while following a more strict set of rules, and it's a pain in the butt, but we should also remember that the big tech companies that this would affect are also heavily involved in lobbying efforts in politics. So How likely is it that we're going to see Section 230 completely repealed? I honestly don't know, but I think it would be a steep uphill battle because you've got a lot of money from these tech companies influencing a lot of politicians. According to a great piece in Ars Technica titled Section 230, The Internet Law Politicians Love to Hate Explained, a law professor at the University of Maryland named Danielle Citron and researcher Ben Witz from the Brookings Institution suggest that 230 should be amended so that the platforms receive immunity only if they ensure, quote, reasonable steps to prevent or address unlawful uses of its services, end quote, leaving a lot of that language up for interpretation in the courts. So the idea being that you should be fine, you should be immune as long as you can prove that... Whenever bad stuff is happening on your platform, you're doing your best to stop it. Um, like so, in in cases where a platform was notified, hey, some other user has published my private information on your platform without my permission, take it down. They would actually go and take it down. Right now, Section two thirty applies to those companies, whether they take anything down or not, and that has led to some pretty tragic circumstances in the lives of people who have been affected by malicious users of various services out there. Now, as I said, this is a complicated subject. Uh, There is a real need to protect freedom of speech because without it, if companies can be held liable for everything that users write, we're gonna see a disappearance of all of those things that we take for granted now. I mean, social networks would be totally different. We wouldn't be able to leave reviews because any company that didn't like a review could end up suing the the marketplace for hosting that review. It would be a huge mess. So we do need something there. At the same time, we have to address that the rules as they state right now do disproportionately affect vulnerable populations in a negative way. And we need to fix that. And we've got to figure out how to give more incentives for platforms to take an active role in moderating the content that appear on those platforms. And to me, that's that's a tough, tough nut to crack because there's not a whole lot of financial incentive to do it unless, as we've seen in 2020, there's a threat of people leaving those platforms. Uh, Otherwise, there's more of a financial incentive to keep it up there. So it's a complicated situation. But I hope that this helps you have an understanding of what Section 230 is, what it was intended to do, and what it actually has done. Because as we know, often we will create a construct planning for it to do one thing, only to see it go off and rampage through the village and you know, throw a little girl in the river. That's a Frankenstein reference. Although I think it might've been a little boy in the book. I don't remember. I haven't read in a long time. Anyway, that wraps up this discussion of section 230 on Tech Stuff. Hope you guys learned something. I uh, Hope you have heard my dog shaking his head in the background. If you have any suggestions for future topics of Tech Stuff, reach out to me. You can do so on Twitter, where unless they start moderating your comments, I'll see it. And the handle for that is TechStuffHSW. I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot
1: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's brand new season two.